It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Hey guys, it's your host, Brian Preston. Pretty excited, because y'all know what happened in the last week. The annual letters to shareholders came out. Mr. Warren Buffett has been all over the place, kind of talking about what Berkshire Hathaway has done in the last year. And a lot of people, it cracks me up, and it's the same people he picks on when you get into the letters of shareholders, are asking, has Warren lost his touch? All the headlines are saying, has this man who has the modest touch lost it because he didn't beat the S&P 500 last year? Have you guys lost your mind? I mean, this is the guy that if you compare his performance to what the general markets have done, he owns them. I mean, it, it really is. He even makes a old quip that they've acquired eight companies, uh, the holdings of eight companies that if they were individual, they would be in the Fortune 500. So he says only 490. That's what I, that was my favorite part. I it was pretty. He's talking trash. I mean, so Warren, Warren completely understands what his skill set is. Now he's self-deprecating enough that you can't help but want to grab a cup of coffee, drink a beer, whatever his drink of choice is. Heck, I might even drink buttermilk with the guy. Um, but here, here's the, the thing. Um, before I get into the annual letter that Warren prepared for his shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway, and remember, he does this in a way that it is super easy to consume because he says he writes this for his non-sophisticated relatives who are not in the financial field, and he wants them to be able to understand it. So you can don't think you have to go read this just because you might want to consider purchasing Berkshire Hathaway. This thing is great because it lets you see under the hood to a lot of different industries. And if you like watching all those science shows like How Things Are Made, this is your cup of tea because he really gets into some details. But before I did that, first let me give you the, the website to go check out. Go to money-guy.com. While you're there, you can sign up for all of our other social media avenues. You know, we've got Twitter, we've got Facebook. By the way, good growth going on with um, all those. We're getting close. Gabe, let me know behind the scenes. We're getting close to another giveaway. So if you haven't checked it out, go to money-guy.com. Sign up for one of those avenues. Um, and we're going to get you some free stuff as we hit some of these benchmarks that we're going to. Also, real quick, Bo has now joined the Twitterverse with his own separate Twitter handle. What is it, real quick, Bo? At MoneyGuyBo. So you can go. I love how simple your name is, B.O. <laughs> so you can go check that out. Um, really good stuff. Premium section, free section. Remember, if you sign up for the free side, you get two extra episodes, plus you get blast emails every time we come up with a new show. And then if you do the premium section, you get our archives all the way back to when we started this show in 2006, as well as some of our quarterly commentary that we send out to our clients. Um, kind of a follow-up to last week's show, because I think this all goes full circle, whole Jerry Seinfeld-esque, is that we did a show on the whole indexing versus active management got some feedback from you listeners and it cracks me up because some of you guys you're rigid you act like i'll bring up some buttermilk again because i like to repeat phrases throughout shows you act like i poured buttermilk on your cornflakes to a degree because i think you guys are thinking all indexing all the time and what you don't understand is i agree with you on 60 to 75 percent and i've even told you we love indexing ourselves so don't think that I'm against you on this whole move towards indexing. Um, matter of fact, what I love about ETFs especially and what they've done for our portfolios, when we're managing assets 
probably even as early as five to six years ago, a good internal expense ratio for our diversified portfolios was probably between 0.7 and 0.8%. Now we're seeing portfolios because of how efficient and the way things are changing in the investment marketplace, where our portfolios are between 0.5 and 0.6, somewhere in that range. We are seeing a trend where lower cost is coming to our investments just because of how efficient these products are delivered. Um, so just be careful in being so rigid. We are definitely core and satellite investors. We're putting a lot of our money to work in these low-cost things. But we just want to throw that feedback out just for the people who had written those inquiries to me. And I think that's full circle comes back to, to Mr. Warren Buffett just in the fact that he kind of gives you his overlay of how he sees the financial world. And he loves him some index investing too. So for those that feel like I just scorned you a little bit, we'll bring it back with uh, Mr. Buffett who says, if you're not doing him, go look at some ind- indexes and other things as well. But here's what... Can I tell you what I, what I love when I first printed this out? Every year he does this, very first page of his annual report, he shows exactly what he's done every single year since 1965. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's basically saying, look, say something. Say something. Tell me I've lost my touch. Look well, at me. I'm curious to know when did he start putting the side-by-side on there. Was it after he tr- he, uh, he whooped <laughs> he it? He knew the S&P could catch He whooped it up. enough times that it was going to be a hard time for the S&P to kind of catch him, or if that's something. That's that's probably a good trivia thing. But it is interesting because we've talked about, and you see it all over the news media, and I'll just read these two paragraphs. It says, Charlie Munger, that's um you know that's, that's Warren's second half, you know his better half that also helps him manage Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire's vice chairman and my partner, and I believe that Berkshire's book value and intrinsic value, by the way, intrinsic value is a common theme in this year's annual letter, so we'll talk about that, will outperform the S&P in years when the market is down or moderately up. We expect to fall short, though, in years when the market is strong, as we did in 2013. We've underperformed in 10 of our 49 years, with all but one of our shortfalls occurring when the S&P gain exceeded 15%. This is a huge point, by the way, guys, because we've even gotten calls from our clients going, guys, S&P got 30%. Matter of fact, we had a client who's been with us forever who just happened to stop by. He was in our neck of the woods, stopped by, sat down with us, and he's like, guys, market got 30%. Uh, you know, I'm counting on we're making a gazillion dollars. And be careful on years that performance is so skewed towards one asset class. And that, Warren makes the point beautifully when he says, we have underperformed in 10 of our 49 years with all but one of our shortfalls occurring when the S&P gain exceeded 15%. It's exactly like last week's show, where I, two weeks ago show, where I was talking about this 2013, this past year, reminded me so much of that segment from 96, 97, 98, where everybody was thinking they were a genius for just buying the S&P 500. Those were outsized years. When, when years when it doesn't do that incredible performance, I think diversification pays off, and that's what Warren is kind of making the point. And then he comes, exactly what Bo said, kind of pumps his chest a few times, and then says this paragraph. Over the stock market cycle between year-ends 2007 and 2013, we overperformed the S&P 500. Yep, that's right. Overperformed the S&P 500 through full cycles in future years. We expect to do that again. Meaning he's basically saying, (laughs) we got this. If we fail to do so, we will have not earned our pay. After all, you could always own an index fund and be assured of S&P results. I'm putting the margin right here. He just said, come at me, bro. Yep. Come at me. No, he don't. And that's true. I, mean, I like, because that's what we, when we have had 
people ask us, hey, you didn't outperform the S&P last year. I said, well, remember, you've been with us since 2002, 2003, 2004. Let's look at your performance over that long-term period. And we're quickly able to show them, you know, that, hey, it's not always how much you make. It's how much you don't lose during those market periods like 2008. And uh, when you, it's, it's, it's double-sided. So I thought that was a great point by Warren on that. Um, just flipping through here before we get to, because really the meat of this thing, Warren goes through each of their divisions. They're four big, what he considers four different divisions of how they break up their assets. And I'm going to kind of flip through here, give you the highlights. I would strongly recommend go download it and look at it. We'll put a link on money-guy.com if you want to go check it out. I already blasted it out on Twitter, too, if you didn't notice that if, uh, if, probably last week when it first came out. But we'll go through these, but then he really gets to the meat and potato stuff that the average investors go love to read. At the very end. So we'll kind of go through this really quickly and then get to those highlights. Cause what I plan on doing, uh, you know, fortunately, Bo, Carol, and Gabe tell me they like hearing me read. Hopefully you will too. But I'm not just reading. We're also going to interject our thoughts on those paragraphs as we're going through them. So let's kind of jump in here. Um, big purchases he talked about was they did acquire Hans. I'm not really going to talk about all their different acquisitions, but it was interesting. I read this, and this is I'm reading you the stuff just like I did when I was going through it. I was yelling through the walls at all the employees here. I was like, guys, do y'all realize what Berkshire's go, the, the coupon they're going to get on their Heinz purchase? And Bo's like, yeah, could you believe it was 9%? That's right. They're getting 9% coupon, meaning they're getting paid 9%. On their preferred stock in Heinz. Unbelievable. Who gets those deals? <laughs> Who gets that? I mean, that, that's 9%. That's almost loan shark territory, but it, but it's because they're Berkshire. They get the, it's shooting fish in a barrel for these guys. It really is. Um, here's the comment. I've already kind of given it out. He says, with Heinz, Berkshire now owns eight and a half companies. I don't know. I don't know what the half is. I guess they only own half. They're waiting for the company to let them get the other half of it. Uh, he says only owns eight and a half companies that were they standalone businesses would be in the Fortune 500. Only 491 and a half to go. You know, and it, it goes down at the end of this of this first page that we're going over. And I love this because this is why Warren is just a consummate businessman. At the very bottom, oh, he's yeah. talking about Geico because Geico is one of their biggest insurance companies that they own. And he says, and you can do yourself a favor by calling, and he gives the number, or checking Geico.com to see if you, too, can cut your insurance costs. He said, you can go buy some of Berkshire's other products with the savings. The dude all throughout this thing is just doing business, telling you you need to buy some of his stuff. Same thing he does at the, uh, at the Omaha conference when, you, when they do it every year. Unfreaking believable Makes me think of Truett Cathy down here. He used to be at, you said, at all the high school basketball and football yeah. games, just handing out Chick-fil-A coupons and stuff. Yeah, if, I was, if I knew then that he was going to be worth $6.3 billion, I might have grabbed a hold of his leg and started riding around <laughs> with him on his leg as a, as a child to see if I could figure out how I could be his protege. But um, uh, that's a whole nother topic. Go check out Twitter and you can see I, I tweeted about the Forbes list of, of billionaires on that list. So it's kind of interesting. Um, flipping through here. I thought it was interesting. This is kind of another flex move, he said. Our subsidiary spent a record $11 billion on plant and equipment, equipment during 2013, roughly twice our depreciation charge. No value with that sentence, but here's the, here's the patriotic statement. About, about 89% of that money was spent in the United States. Though we invest abroad as well, the mother load of opportunity resides in America. So there Makes he is. Makes you feel kind of good. Yeah. You know, you feel, and I've got a comment. I'll read, I'll say it here in a minute. I'll tell you where I think the motivation was on this stuff. He says, Berkshire's year in employment 
Counting Hines totaled a record 330,745, up 42,283 from last year. That's a lot of people that are working under, you know, in all these investable. And I'm sure they're not, they're not actually getting a W-2 from Berkshire, but these companies are all right. companies that Berkshire owns and, and they're tied into it. That's, that's pretty cool. Makes you feel a little patriotic about that. It says the increase, I must admit, included one person at our Omaha office. Don't panic. The headquarters gang still fits completely on one floor. <laughs> Every year, you'll notice, by the way, if you're new to the whole Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, maybe you're a new investor, he kind of pokes fun at their Omaha office in the way that, like, you know, I can't remember if it was last year, two years, three years ago. He was talking about how much they have and oh, it's on the books for their office equipment and their desk and stuff. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's so cheap. What that he has in their office, especially when how many billions of dollars that right, they have under right. management. Really, really incredible stuff. Um, <laughs> some of this stuff, it's it, I, I don't need to go into because we're going to run out of time if I go into these. But I will tell you, Warren got a little saucy this year. <laughs> a few of these, and I'm going to read one of them. I'm not going to read all of them. But I, I don't know if it's Warren's age. But he's getting to that stage in life. You know how you, we all have probably a, a, an older uncle or a grandparent that... Um, they just say whatever they want. Yeah, I mean, you're at a restaurant and an attractive waitress walks up and they'll compliment that waitress on how attractive they are. And you kind of like, oh, gosh, don't don't say that. That's a, you know, you, But he gets away with it because he's... I think Warren is kind of getting to that point in his right. life where he just lets it loose. And you'll see the R-rated... Com- if you read this, you'll see there's a few R-rated... You know, winks by Warren. They let you know, hey, he's he's a normal dude too. So it's um kind of interesting. Um, he rolls it through and talks about intrinsic value. Okay, I'll read this one. I'll, maybe I'll give you two of his R-rated statements because here's one of them. It's a, it's showing off because it talks about how much cash he has, and I'll just read it. it. Says our flexibility and capital allocation, our willingness to invest large sums passively in non-controlled businesses, gives us a significant advantage over companies that limit themselves to acquisitions they can operate. Here's the first saucy one. I I didn't blush at this one. I blushed at the second one. But here's the first one. Woody Allen stated the general idea when he said, the advantage of being bisexual, that's right, Warren Buffett just said that, is that it doubles your chances for a date on Saturday night. Similarly, (laughs) our appetite for either operating businesses or passive investments doubles our chances of finding sensible uses of our endless gusher of cash. So he's bragging about his cash, but he's also saying they can look at twice as many companies because they're not only looking for companies they can operate, they're just looking for really good companies that they can utilize the cash he, for. He said it even a little bit. He said, we prefer owning a non-controlling but substantial portion of a wonderful company to owning 100% of a so-so business. I mean, um, how true is that? It, 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 it's perfect. I mean, that's why you can't help but feel patriotic as well as this guy nails it. I he mean, said, it really does. He said it's better to have a partial interest in the Hope Diamond than to own all of a rhinestone. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you got to love the guy. Like I said, coffee, beer, whatever Warren wants, I would, I would have a drink with him. Um, I thought this part, here's, what it, my, here's my theory. I don't know if it's true. I think he wrote this while he was watching the Olympics. And, and here's here's the and I'll I'll I'll, I'll dial down because I know we have international listeners too. But here's here's the Warren Buffett quote. This is in here as well. Indeed, who has ever benefited during the past 237 years by betting against America? If you compare our country's present condition to that existing in 1776, you have to rub your eyes and wonder. 
Is that an SAT word or is that a word that he made up? The dynamism. It's a dynamic. It's a dynamic. I get that, but I've never seen the ism put on there. Embedded in our market economy will continue to work its magic. America's best days lie ahead. Do y'all see why my SAT scores on the English side? Now, math, I killed it. I have the the math, I mean, the English score of a professional athlete without the athleticism. <laughs> that sounds horrible, but uh, but we'll hopefully, I don't know, you can take that out if you think I offended anybody. Bo, uh, since you're the CFA, I want to kind of, one of the things he focused on in the next section was intrinsic business value. And that's kind of a trend that he gets into all in here. And he talks about the three elements. There's the qualitative, but then there's the quantitative. And he had two two things that he focuses on in the quantitative. The per share investments, the pre-tax earnings, and he talks about the growth, you know, and I thought I thought it was interesting. Anything you want to add on that those sections? No, Did you make any comments? To, to me, basically, intrinsic value is just the value. And he even said this. When he and Charlie talk about a company, there's no way to actually quantify what the intrinsic value is. Yeah. What they do is they look at a company and they try to figure out how much money will this return to me in the future. They don't know how much that is. And they don't know how long that income stream will last, so they can't calculate a true present value. But intrinsic value is essentially the goodwill, the tangible assets, and the things you don't know about. How much is the company really, really worth is what intrinsic value is. And he does a good job. He kind of goes through, and this is what this is where we'll get under the hood for just a second before we get these investment concepts you could learn from. But the first category, because he goes through his four business components, and the first one's insurance. And we know, and he will even tell you, insurance, I think, is Warren's passion. I mean, this one is the one that he's been in for years. Geico's one of his earliest investments, and he really has a passion for it. And he what I liked about this is just like I told you, I watched, you know, cha- I watched TV channels in shows that show me how things are made because I like to see under the hood. I mean, it's just my inquisitive, curious side that likes to know just where did that come from? Well, here's what I thought was interesting. If you've ever wondered about your insurance agent, like your property and casualty, your state farm, you're the guys who are giving you homeowners insurance and your auto insurance, and you're like, okay, tell me a little bit more how that works. What I liked in this one, he actually, Warren talked about float and how that works. And here's what's interesting about a float. Uh, is that insu- it's not really their money. It's not the insurance company's money because this is the money they have to keep in reserves in case there's claims. Um, so on the balance sheet, these floats, these insurance floats, are listed as a liability. So the company on the balance sheet looks like there's truly no benefit. It's all a negative, meaning because they have to reserve this money. But non- you know, the truth of the industry is, though, that they can use those assets in very short-term increments to... to to make money off of. Right. So there's a big value. And I, and I thought that was interesting because he gives the history of their insurance float. In 1970, they had $39 million in insurance float. So you can imagine interest income off $39 million, still for Pretty me and strong. you as individuals would be incredible. But still, in terms of Berkshire and Fortune 500 companies, the interest off of $39 million not going to change that much. But look at this. 2013. Their insurance float in 2013 was $77 billion with a B. That's right, billion with a B. It's nuts. The interest that you can make off $77 billion is probably pretty good. I'd say so. Especially as interest rates go up, this is only going to get stronger. The intrinsic value will increase for this float. As interest rates go up, if I can totally, you know, bring this thing full circle for Warren. So this is what's really cool. And this is why I talked about intrinsic value so much between each of the divisions is he's talking about, Hey guys, 
just like Bo was talking about the marketing of guy, he's marketing Berkshire Hathaway because he's saying, if you think this is good, wait until you see what we got coming down the pipe. That's right. Because the government and the accounting standards are making us list this insurance float as a as a, a liability, as a detriment to the company. Meanwhile, we actually are getting a benefit out of this. We're going to be able to take this $77 billion. It stays pretty constant. He goes through that whole process, and we're going to be able to make money off of it. Brilliant. I mean, really incredible when you look at these numbers. Um, I'm not going to get into, because he talks about the, the losses on insurance. I don't think we need to get into that. If you want to know more about how the insurance industry works, he can um, he, he kind of lets you see behind the curtain on how that works. The next section he kind of goes into, that's still insurance. He spends a good bit of time on insurance. I feel like he really spent a lot of time on each business section, which I think is a little different than a lot of yeah. his. Um, but I, th- I felt like probably due to the underperformance of the S&P, he felt like he needed to really explain, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, and this is why last year was the way that it was. That's probably the reason the whole intrinsic value was such a, a kind of a, a theme running right. underneath. Just in case anybody was questioning He's saying, hey, don't look at our book value. Look at what we're truly worth right. in the future with upcoming things that are coming down the pipe. The next category was regulated capital-intensive businesses. Here's what I'll tell you about that. We primarily was talking about here was his freight and utilities investments. Um, I, I thought it was kind of interesting, the, the utilities. Why are those so strong? Everybody knows this. It was kind of a basic of investing. He says, Utilities are recession-resistant earnings, which results from these companies exclusively offering an essential service. I mean, utility companies offer really good dividend yields, and you know, even if things get bad, people are going to still need power in their homes. The other one that he was talking about with these regulated capital-intensive businesses was the the freight. You know, he owns; they own the essentially the freight. BNSF. Yeah, I mean, it's the rail. Uh, that we use to get goods across America now. And it's the artery in our economy's circulatory system. So if you think about it, I mean, it really is how we get things. And, Bo, we were talking about the the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts. The, you know, the, I love that. I think it was the History Channel had the men who made America. Yep. Truly incredible if you think about that analogy that Warren's making right there. Um, look, keep continuing going forward because he goes into even more detail. You can look into the next category of businesses that Berkshire has is manufacturing service and retailing operations. He doesn't spend much time on this because, as he even says, um, we have far too many companies in this group to comment on them individually. Moreover, both current and potential competitors read this report. So, in other words, hey, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you because we got competitors looking. So he doesn't, you know, he adds some cool things in there, but nothing worth sharing on the show. Another um, thing I thought was beautiful is before each one of these sections, he put he puts like a quote either from an article he's been featured in yeah. or one of his previous uh, one of his previous uh, letters to shareholders. Uh, on the one for manufacturing, service, and retailing, it's from a book called Super Money by Adam Smith that was written in 1972, and he kind of says he, he was talking to Adam Smith, and it says. See that store, Warren says, pointing at Nebraska Furniture Mart? That's a really good business. Well, the reporter says, well, why don't you buy it? And Warren very calmly replies, it's privately held. The reporter says, oh. And then Warren adds, I might buy it anyways. He said, one day. <laughs> just think that's beautiful. He'd have to buy it. Then he knew it was a great business. He knew he'd own it one day, but he's just going to wait for the right time to do it. Well, that, that is one of the companies he owns. Oh, yeah. He, no, he yeah. owns it now. That's, that's, that's the one that he's always... The, one, the big expansion yeah. down in Dallas. You'll yeah, get into that as you read through it. So it is great because he does do those quotes. The next business sector was the finance and financial products. You know, this getting into the, the 
you know, the type of investments that, that are on the financial side of things. He doesn't spend a ton of time on this. Um, and we won't either, but it's still a profitable business, of course, for, for Berkshire. And then here's where he gets into his investments. Berkshire really is unique in the fact that not only are they trying to run companies, but they really have gone out there at strategic times and bought big chunks of public companies. I mean, the top five holdings that, I, well, six holdings that I'm looking at is here is American Express. That's 14.2% of the, they own 14.2% of the company. Coca-Cola, they own 9.1%. DirecTV, they own 4.2%. ExxonMobil, they own 0.9%. Goldman Sachs, they own 2.8% of it. And then IBM, they own 6.3%. Um, kind of bowling it down because it has a whole list here of companies, their cost basis in these companies is $56.5 billion, but they're worth hundred, close to $118 billion. So you can see he's doubled. And, and some of these, remember, he was... He looked like he looked like he was crazy. I don't know crazy, but he was definitely the guy showing up with a checkbook when Goldman Sachs got in a lot of trouble in the financial downfall. Same thing with Wells Fargo. Well, the big one I noticed was the the Bank of America. Did you see what it said about oh, yeah. his Bank oh, of America yeah. holding? I, mean, I didn't I didn't highlight it, but I can I can I, I can read that real quick because I I mean it's right here. It says Berkshire has one major equity position that is not included on the table. We can buy seven hundred million shares of Bank of America. At any time prior to September of 2021. For how much? For $5 billion. That sounds like a lot of money, but listen to this. At year end, these shares were worth $10.9 billion. So this cat owns an option that's already doubled in value. I mean, it's fantastic. And by the way, he's still got a number of years. And I like the fact he says, our plan is, it's important for you to realize that Bank of America is in effect our fifth largest equity investment and one we highly value. And he goes, where is it down here? He goes, we're not, he basically says that they're going to exercise it as, lo- as long as possible. They're going right. to hold out so they don't have to use that. They're going to make money on that $5 billion because they're not required to give it to them until 2021. They're going to make money on that $5 billion, probably double, triple that $5 billion, but then go give Bank of America $5 billion and probably pull down $20 billion worth of right. assets or whatever it's worth in 2021. Another thing I really like that Warren did throughout this, uh, throughout this entire letter is he talked about a lot of his mistakes. Now he says, look, this isn't, here are some mistakes I've made. These certainly are not the last mistakes I've made. I've misevaluated this. I've miscalculated this. I've done this wrong. And he actually walks you some of his actual um, examples. One of them, he says, uh, most of you have never heard of energy future holdings. Consider yourselves lucky. Lucky. I certainly wish I hadn't. <laughs> the company was formed in 07 to affect a giant leveraged body of electric utility assets in Texas. The equity owners put up $8 billion and borrowed a massive amount in addition. About $2 billion of the debt was purchased by Berkshire pursuant to a decision I made without consulting with Charlie. That was a big mistake, he says. <laughs> he said, unless natural gas prices soar, EFH will almost certainly file for bankruptcy in 2014. Last year, we sold our holdings for $259 million. While owning these bonds, we received about $800 million in cash interest. Overall, therefore, we suffered a pre-tax loss of $873 million. And then he closes it by saying, next time, I'll call Charlie. <laughs> uh, okay, so here's... Here's where we get into the part that you see on the TV. This is, he goes, some thoughts about investing. When he tells you, don't you feel like when he says some thoughts about investing, you know he's just getting into the oh, he's like He's like, sit down, it's story time, little boys. Here it is. And, uh, and he has a quote, just like Bo said, between each section. He says, investment 
is most intelligent when it is most businesslike. And that is a quote from The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. Now, why is Benjamin Graham so important? Because Ben Graham is who Warren kind of says is who changed his life. Um, and, and he talks about it. You know, he, he says, if you haven't read The Intelligent Investor, go do it yesterday. I mean, you really do need to go check into it because it's just, and he talks about how incredibly well it was written and so easy to understand that it was the best investment. I think he says it's actually the second best investment he's ever made besides his marriage license. So I I thought that was um, pretty incredible and pretty much a plug that you ought to go check out this just timeless piece of information. So here's here's what he says, and I'm just going to read this because it really is incredible stuff. And I've seen this all over the media, so you've probably heard of it, but maybe you have only seen one paragraph or excerpts, and we're going to give you a little bit more of it. It says, in 1986, because he first sets this up, I don't mean to keep you know false starting you here, but he says he's going to go over two, not very big investments, but they're investments that you can learn a lot. So here they are. In 1986, I purchased a 400-acre farm, located 50 miles north of Omaha from the FDIC. It cost me 280000 considerably less than what a failed bank had lent against the farm a few years earlier. So it was right after a bubble burst. I knew nothing about operating a farm, but I had a son who loved farming, and I learned from him both how many bushels of corn and soybeans the farm could produce and what the operating expenses would be. From these estimates, I calculated the normalized return from the farm to then be about 10%. I also thought it was likely that productivity would improve over time and that crop prices would move higher as well. Both expectations proved out. I needed no unusual knowledge or intelligence to conclude that the investment had no downside and potentially had substantially had substantial upside. There would, of course, be the occasional bad crop and prices would sometimes disappoint, but so what? There would be some unusually good years as well and I would never be under any pressure to sell the property. Now, 28 years later, the farm has tripled its earnings, and it's worth five times or more what I paid. I still know nothing about farming, and recently made just my second visit to the farm. So that's example one. Here's example two, and he's going to bring this all together and give you some bullet points on why these two examples are so important. And that you can totally t- rely, take this information and use it in how you manage your own assets. He says, in 1993, I made another small investment. By the way, his, his idea of small might be large for yeah, us. Yeah, it's a but, little, but, little different. But um, in terms of Berkshire, it, it, it's small. There was a New York retail property adjacent to NYU that a, that a trust corporation owned, and they were trying to sell and unload it. He goes, here too, the analysis was, analysis was simple. As had been the case with the farm, the unleveraged current yield from the property was about 10%. But the property had been undermanaged by the RTC. That's that Resolution Trust Corporation that was trying to sell it. And its income would increase with several vacant stores when several vacant stores were released. Even more important, the largest tenant, which occupied around 20% of the project space, was paying rent for about $5 per foot, whereas other tenants averaged $70. So that's huge. I mean, they, they had a loss there going on with their biggest tenant, it sounds like. The expiration of this bargain lease in nine years was certain to provide a boost to earnings. The property's location was also superb. NYU wasn't going anywhere. How true that is. I joined a small group, including Larry and my friend Fred Rose, that purchased the parcel. Fred was an, in, an in, experienced, high-grade real estate investor who, with his family, would manage the property. And manage it they did. 
As old leases expired, earnings tripled. Annual distributions now exceed 35% of our original equity investment. Just to put that in perspective, you buy an investment in the early 90s, and now every year you're getting the equivalent of 35% of that initial purchase. Of the original purchase. Just back is distributions. Moreover, our original mortgage was refinanced in 1996 and again in 1999. Moves that allowed several special distributions totaling more than 150% of what we'd invested. So not only are you getting 35% of what the amount was you initially invested, you've already gotten back 150% of what what you made. So you're, you're on more than house money at this point. This thing is just a cash cow, really is. Income from both the farm and the NYU real estate will probably increase in the decades to come. Though the gains won't be dramatic, the two investments will be solid and satisfactory holdings for my lifetime and subsequently for my children and grandchildren. So here's... Did, did you ahead. mention the part about how he's actually never seen the property yeah. at NYU? Yeah. It, I, I think, yeah, he did say that. He said um, 150% of what we had invested. I've yet to view this property. Unbelievable. So he, he's probably never... I mean, he hasn't. I don't, I'm assuming he's seen pictures of it. Right. Maybe Google Earth pictures of it, but this thing is a cash cow for him. So here's the points. These are the bullet points he tells you. He says, I tell you these tales to illustrate certain fundamentals of investing. Here's the first one. You don't need to be an expert in order to achieve satisfactory investment returns. But if you aren't, you must recognize your limitations and follow a course certain to work reasonably well. Keep things simple and don't swing for the fences. When promise quick profits, respond with a quick no. I love that. That is huge. I mean, how many people do we have that tell us that, hey, I'm, I'm a prudent, I'm a long-term investor, but then they have somebody pitch to them, hey, you can make this amount of money. Like, oh, oh, I got to do that. I'm interested yeah. in that. Let me in. What's our most popular show or one of our more popular shows? I mean, we, it's been years. We did a take off of Bringing Sexy Back with Justin Timberlake by entitled it Bring Simple Back. Because what caused the financial collapse of 2008? A lot of it was off of over-leveraging, taking on way too much debt, but then there was also people getting into way too complicated investments, derivatives and other things they knew nothing about. And, you know, and these banks didn't know how to, I mean, the, the rating agencies didn't know how to underwrite them. So people got into way too investigate, into, you know, complicated invest, investments that it really threw them off. So bringing simple back is very important and Warren agrees. Focus on the future productivity of the asset you're considering. If you don't feel comfortable making a rough estimate of the asset's future earnings, just forget it and move on. No one has the ability, ability to evaluate every investment possibility. And it's not necessary. You only need to understand the actions you undertake. Um, I thought this was interesting. Why, when you go to a bank, when you're trying to start a company, do they ask you for a business plan? They ask you for a business plan because they want to see what you're going to do on cash flow. They want to see how the money's going to come into the company. I can still, I even thought about bringing it out as a prop for this show today. Um, when I started my company back in 2002, I remember sitting down and drafting out a five to six year like cash flow analysis really wasn't a business plan because I wasn't asking for money from a bank or anything. I just wanted to know, hey, was I going to be okay? And how many clients did I need to get? What did I need to do to be successful in year one, year two, year three, year four? 
And, and I, I love this thing. It's a timeless to me. It's probably going to be sentimental to me forever because it's exactly what Warren is talking about. All successful plans have you putting pen to paper or at least evaluating what somebody else has put pen to paper and you understanding the cash flows and where the money comes from. And, and do you, if you understand it, it's probably going to be good. His third item that he focused on. If you instead focus on the prospective price change of a contemplated purchase, you're speculating. There's nothing improper about that. I know, however, that I'm unable to speculate successfully, and I'm skeptical of those who claim sustained success at doing so. Half of all coin flippers will win their first toss. None of those winners have an expectation of profit if he continues to play the game. And the fact that a given asset has appreciated in recent past is never a reason to buy it. You know, this ties into the March Madness we're coming up on. Right. Didn't he offer a billion dollars if somebody can nail it? Or what was, was the? Was it a billion or a million? It was. It was. It was a big number. If somebody gets every game right, then uh, he's going to give you. I can't remember if it was a billion or a million. It seems like I remember the difference in those two. Either way, I think he's feeling pretty confident. It proves his point on what he just made there. Um, the next one was with my two small investments. I thought only of what the properties would produce and cared not at all about their daily valuations. Games are won by players who focus on the playing field, not by those whose eyes are glued to the scoreboard. If you can enjoy Saturday and Sundays without looking at the stock prices, give it a try on weekdays. And my voice sounds jovial because, man, would that make my life easier. Oh, yeah. I mean, even though we're sitting here and I see CNBCs on in the background, we do that just in case somebody calls us to ask. I don't think you need to look at your portfolio Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Um, forming macro opinions or listening to the macro market predictions of others is a waste of time. Indeed, it is dangerous because it may blur your vision of the facts that are truly important. Whenever I hear TV commentators um, opine on what the market will do next, I remi- I'm reminded of Mickey Mantle's scathing comment. You don't know how easy this game is until you get into the broadcasting booth. That's perfect. Yeah, I mean, Bo- Bo's an athlete, so he can he can definitely, you know, level with Mickey Bantle. And here's his last one, and then we'll kind of close this thing out. Um, He says, my two purchases were made in 1996 and 1993. What the economy and interest rates or the stock market might do in the years immediately following 1987 and 1994 was of no importance to me in making those investments. Why, Why does he even mention those two years? Remember, 1987 was the Black Friday. When we had tremendous drop in the markets, freaked a lot of people out. And then, if you look at 1994, this is the year that we had the saving and loans crisis. These are the these are the things that you know a lot of pundits say that took the elder Bush out of his presidency in 1996. So these things were big, dramatic economic events that occurred. Now we look back and go, "Hey, that's nothing." You know, 2008 was the big year, but 20 years from now. It's also going to just be a footnote, just like 1987 and 1994. So when Warren in 1986 was buying a farm, in 1993 when he's buying a building, he didn't care what was going on in these other things. He goes, I can't remember what the headlines or pundits were saying at the time. Whatever the chatter, corn would would keep growing in Nebraska and students would continue to flock to NYU and how right he was. Um, He he keeps going on. There's an important paragraph here. He goes, it should be enormous advantage for investors in stocks to have those wildly fluctuating values placed on their holdings. And for some investors, it is. After all, if a moody fellow with a farm bordering my property yelled out a price every day to me at which he would either buy me, buy my farm, or sell me his, and those prices varied widely over a short period of time, depending upon his mental state, how in the world could I be other than benefited 
benefited by his erratic behavior. If his short daily shout-out was ridiculously low and I had some spare cash, I'd buy his farm. If the number he yelled was absurdly high, I'd either sell to him or just go on farming. I mean, guys, do you realize how silly he makes us all feel with that statement? I mean, how many of us panic? We've turned a benefit into a negative. Yep. And he's making fun of us and kind of making us feel silly. It's a, it's a great statement. It really is. Um, I wish I had his skill set. I mean, we do to a degree. We're good at the hand-holding during crises and right. bad times. But Warren does it in a way that you kind of feel like you probably would hesitate to call him. He makes you feel kind of silly. Maybe that's not a benefit. It's a benefit to read it. But maybe you don't want Warren as your personal financial advisor because then you might be scared to call him on the phone because you're like, oh, he's going to make me feel silly for this question. But it's a great statement what he's saying. He, go, he continues on. He says, owners of stocks, however, too often let the capricious and often irrational behavior of their fellow owners cause them to behave irrationally as well. Because there's so much chatter about the markets, the economy, interest rates, price behavior of stocks, some investors believe it is important to listen to the pundits. And worse yet, important to consider acting upon their comments. Bo, you got kind of a Mayan calendar call yesterday. Oh yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a relative of one of our clients who was, he told you the date. I don't, I'm not going to tell you, you know, no reason to, to spread something that I think is, is, is Warren's word, capricious. Um, but somebody told, called yesterday just saying, as of this date, the market's going to go Oh, yeah. To hell. On this day, uh, you know, America's going to essentially cease to be. What are we doing to plan for that? And I was like, <laughs> wow. Uh, let me show you where the closest ammo store is, I guess, because, I mean, that's the... You need a seed bank. Yeah, you need, you need some... <laughs> you need a plot of land and a bunch of bullets. Oh, it's... Um, it, I don't know. It, it's just funny because, I mean, that's why I have to keep reading this because it's just too good not to read it. Those people who can sit quietly for decades... When they own a farm or apartment house, too often become frantic when they are exposed to a stream of stock quotations and accompanying commentators delivering an implied message of just don't sit there, do something. For these investors, liquidity is transformed from the unqualified benefit it should be to a curse. Brilliant. And this ties in because, I mean, I can tell you so many phone calls after we had those flash crashes. We had clients emailing us, asking us, hey, what's your policy on flash crashes and I mean, it's, it's now you read this and you're like, wow, I should just well, send them over letter to shareholders next time if I want to lose them as a client. <laughs> um, a flash crash or some other extreme market fluctuation can't hurt an investor any more than an erratic and mouthy neighbor can hurt my farm investment. Indeed, tumbling markets can be helpful to the true investor if he has cash available when the prices get far out of line with the values. A climate of fear is your friend when investing. A euphoric world is your enemy. And um, here, here's the, here's the, here's kind of closing out this section. It says, during the extraordinary financial panic that occurred in late 2008, I never gave a thought to selling my farm or New York, New York real estate, even though a severe recession was clearly brewing. And if I had owned 100% of a solid business with a good long-term prospects, it would have been foolish for me to even consider dumping it. So why would I have sold my stocks? that were small participations in wonderful businesses. True, any one of them might eventually disappoint. But as a group, they were certain to do well. Could anyone really believe the earth was going to swallow up the incredibly productive assets and unlimited human ingenuity existing in America? It's the whole thing. Was It, it was Warren that said, it, was it another letter to shareholders where he's talking about, you know, people always going to be drinking Coca-Cola yep. and trading a few exactly seashells, right. gold pieces, I silver think that was pieces. last year's. Yeah. yeah, he's always, and that's what I tell people. And I use that quote all the time as I say, 
if you think the world's coming to an end, do you think you'll still be drinking Coca-Cola? Do you think, I mean, if you have a red dawn moment, you know, with Putin doing all this crazy stuff in the world, even if they send over some, some guys who are going to jump out of planes and try to take over America, you know, like some of these people would scare you to believe. Do you think they're not going to want Coca-Cola? No, they're, they're going to want Coca-Cola. They're just going to say it with an accent. And, you, and you're going to still spend some seashells or cash or, you know, dollars, gold, silver. I mean, it's all going to work the same. I mean, that really is. That breath of fresh air always makes me feel a little bit better. Um, Bo, there's there's a whole nother page. I kind of I won't give you a chance to kind of jump in here if you want to add anything because there's one more. I had a comment that I even wrote a comment. I blushed. So I mean, I, I guess I'll read this and then I'll let you kind of close out sure. the show with a few thoughts. Because here's here's the other R-rated. I'm older than you, so I should probably read the R-rated comments. Um, he goes. Here, I'll read both of these. I have good news for these non-professionals. The typical investor doesn't need this skill. And the skill he's talking about, by the way, is the ability to predict future earnings on everything. You don't, he's saying you don't need that skill. He goes, in aggregate, American businesses have done wonderfully over time and will continue to do so. Like I said, he was watching the Olympics as he, as he was doing this. And in the 20th century, the Dow Jones Index advanced from 66 to 11,497, paying a rising stream of dividends to boot. The 21st century will witness further gains, almost certain to be substantial. The goal of the non-professional should not be to pick winners. Neither he nor his helpers can do that, but should rather be to own a cross-section of businesses that in aggregate are bound to do well. A well-cost S&P index fund will achieve this goal. And that's exactly what we talked about in the last show. I think in these efficient marketplaces... Go get that return because that's what the market's going to do for you. And here's the part where I blush. Let me read this to you. First, I'm also going to say the word financial mutant. I want you to have that mental state of mind as I'm reading this. That's the what of investing for the non-professional. The when is also important. The main danger and that the timid or the beginning investor will enter the market at a time of extreme exuberance and then become disillusioned when paper losses occur. Okay, here's the part. Remember the late Barton Biggs observation. Mm. A bull market is like sex. It feels best just before it ends. Holy cow, I really, I'm blushing again, I think. <laughs> I almost, don't let my mom listen to this one. <laughs> the antidote to that kind of mistiming is for an investor to accumulate shares over a long period and never to sell when the news is bad and the stocks are well off their highs. Following these rules, the know-nothing investor who both diversifies and keeps his costs minimal, is virtually certain to get satisfactory results. And I wrote Financial Mutant for a purpose. We had a listener a few years ago who wrote an email who said, Guys, I get excited. When things go down, I, I, kinda, I can't wait to see my monthly investment in my retirement plan or my monthly investment that I just have on a dollar-cost averaging strategy just buys because I feel like I'm getting more shares. And that's that's... Great way to think about it. And that ties in to exactly what Warren, Warren might as well just gone ahead and requoted himself again and said, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Go out there with a bucket, not a thimble, when, you know, when, when, when it's raining opportunity. I mean, I, I totally slaughtered that one, but it's close enough that I think Warren would probably give me a little credit. But these are the things that I really think add a lot of value. He closes it out talking about the intelligent investor 
and Ben Graham and just how it's one of the best decisions he ever made with buying that book. Bo, any other thoughts? I'll kind of let you close it. No, I think I think Warren did a fantastic job talking about how it's easy. I, I think his 2008 letter to shareholders had to be written, or 2009, I guess, had to be written specifically a certain way because of how bad things were. I think this was written a certain way because of how good things were. And I think Warren is saying no matter what the business cycle is doing, no matter what's going on, you have a strategy, you stick to it, you focus on keeping your costs low, and you focus on diversification, and you make wise decisions now, and a good decision now is going to stay a good decision, no matter if the market goes up, down, left, right, sideways. Have a plan, stick to it, and you can't help but be successful. I, mean, I think that's the, the motto of this of this letter to shareholders. These episodes, we do them every year, are a little unique because I, I do read a lot of it. I try to do so much when we do these shows. I try to make sure I can give you personal stories and other things. But Warren is such an accomplished investor that it's worth kind of going through the highlights, giving you our anecdotal thoughts as being professional money managers ourselves. And you just can't help but like the guy. I mean, he really is. I know he, he kind of gets in a burr in some people because of his, he, he gets involved in politics and other things, but man, you cannot help but respect a man when you look at his track record and how successful he has been. And he really does offer a lot with these letters to shareholders. So check it out. I'll put a link on the website. It's money-guy.com. Uh, we'll be back in about two weeks. I'm hoping that the weather will finally start warming up. This winter has been just not what I've been enjoying with the weather. So hopefully things will get better. I can say that to you guys. I know this is a national, actually an international podcast, but this has been a trend that's been happening all across the country. So you guys are probably going, uh, giving me a little bit of an amen as well. So I'll talk to you guys in two weeks. Thanks for all the support and for listening to the show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.